Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Sandman number 11, The Doll's House, part two, moving in. Cover date of November 1989, the art again by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III. And uh, Glenn, I want to start out by immediately giving us a little quote from something Neil had written in the script. This is uh, per the annotated Sandman. Uh, at the end of the episode, at uh, the end of the script for this issue, uh, Neil wrote, "Quote: Frankly, I'm not sure how much more you can actually get into a 24-page comic. I mean, it's got everything: dancing, singing, eye-eating, child abuce, and G.K. <laughs> Chester- Chesterton." Hope you all like it. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's the perfect summary. There's no comment that can summarize this uh, this issue up better than that. And that is basically everything that I would ever want in a story. So perhaps this is the the uh, the platonic form of a uh, single issue comic book uh, right here. It's it's a fantastic issue, and I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, there's there's a lot that's happening, and a lot of new characters introduced. Some who will be seeing for a shorter period of time. Some whose spoilers will be seeing for a little bit longer period of time. And uh, uh, it picks up right away with uh, Rose moving into a house, uh, which we quickly learn is in Florida. Some time has passed since she was with her mother and newly reunited grandmother in England. I believe um, indication that it's been a couple weeks. And yeah, this place that she's moving into is uh, a, a three-story Victorian house. It's got a, a turret. It's got one of these small top floor windows. I mean, it looks very much like a haunted house. And I think that's one of the things that Gaiman is playing with here because he's going to populate this house with some real interesting characters. And Rose is here because she is moving in, as the the title of this issue would suggest. And we're going to learn why that is in just a, a few minutes. But I think we should talk about who these people are. So the first person that we meet is Hal Carter, who is the landlord, and he looks to be about 30. But Hal is also sometimes Dolly. He's a drag queen, and we're going to learn a little something about the show that Dolly is in a little later. And then there are Ken and Barbie, who are exactly what it says on the box. They are normal, basic people who may as well, in fact, be the Ken and Barbie dolls. It's a joke they make themselves, which is fantastic. And then finally, we meet the Spider Women, Chantel and Zelda, they are dressed all in white, including white veils, very creepy, and they have a peculiar manner of speaking. And and here's how they greet Rose. Hello, new housemate. We heard the commotion and thought it proper to introduce ourselves. Uh, Just creepy, creepy manner of speaking as well. And they also make a point of bragging about their collection of stuffed spiders, which is the largest private collection on the East Coast. And to be clear, uh, because I actually wasn't until a line later in this issue, they're not talking about like teddy spiders. They are very definitely talking about a collection of real dead uh, taxidermized spiders. And uh, that is the the household here, or it's most of it anyway, because there is still Gilbert who lives on the top floor, but we're not going to meet him for a little while. And the uh, the Spider Sisters are really interesting characters, and uh, there's a lengthy description from the script, um, from Neil Gaiman's original script, which is in the annotated uh, Sandman by Leslie Klinger, and I recommend that people check that out when they have an opportunity. I'm not going to go through all of it, but I will mention... Uh, little snippet in the description that is shared here. After giving a description of each and pointing out that Zelda is very similar to uh, Chantel, but that Zelda never says anything, although she whispers sometimes. And then he, Neil goes on to say, I have no idea what their relationship is. 
and neither does anyone else in the building. Mother and daughter? Lovers? Sisters? Friends? Transsexual brothers? It doesn't matter, really. They're soulmates. Which I think is a beautiful sentiment as to those two, that they, for whatever way, either because they've always known each other or they met each other at some point, um, they have become the perfect buddy comedy duo. (laughs) Yeah, I would watch that sitcom. I would watch a TV show about this entire house, right? In fact, this whole house is something of a doll's house, right? And I mean, quite literally, there's Ken and Barbie here. Yeah, and we, we, we didn't, we kind of quickly went over the first panel, but we have... Um, Hal leaning out the window and calling out to Rose as she approaches the house. And the house looks a lot like the doll's house that is in Unity's room that we saw back last um, issue, um, where occasionally Dream would be in a window. Yes, absolutely. I think that the connections are are really quite clear. And I think that the the window actually that Dream was in, in the the analog of this that we saw in the previous issue, might actually be, uh, might actually correspond with Gilbert's room in this house, as we'll see a little bit later as we get into this, uh, into this issue. So at this point, Rose and Hal say goodbye so that Rose can finish unpacking in this room that she's renting here in this house. And, And this is where she reveals that what she's doing here is looking for her little brother, Jed, whom we learned about in the previous issue. And Unity Kincaid, this is their their grandmother, Unity Kincaid wants to find this last member of her family. And Unity Kincaid has the money to make that happen. And so Rose is here to play detective. And we get some more information about Jed finally. We didn't really have a lot of details about him in the last issue, but here we learn that he's 12 at this point, but Rose hasn't actually seen him in seven years. And in the the next sequence, we're actually going to meet Jed. This next page that we get here is cartoonish, and it has a, a real nice fairy tale banner at the top that lets us know that we are in the land of marvelous dreams, which uh, that's where I'd like to live if uh, if I could arrange that as well. And we see here a young boy, it's, it's Jed, and he's with two caped superheroes, a, a man and a woman. The the superheroes are are flying and they're they're each holding one of Jed's hands, so Jed is flying as well, at least so long as he's holding on. But of course there are some bad guys here as well. And these are Brute and Glob, whom we know escaped from the dreaming during Dreams Imprisonment. That's something we learned last issue as well. And Brute and Glob are operating a hot air balloon, which, as I recall, is definitely the preferred mode of transportation for most villains. At least that's how I uh, how I choose to see the world. And what's more, on top of this, Brute and Glob have a skooky bird that they send to bite Jed's arm until he lets go and falls. But we snap out of this dream just as Jed is falling and just as he heartbreakingly calls out, Mother, save me. And so now we're back in the the waking world where we see that the real Jed is imprisoned in a dank basement where he has to urinate against the wall and has to sleep on the concrete floor and he has no light. And we're going to see later that he's actually chained up down here. And from upstairs in this house, someone shouts for him to stop whimpering. And this person actually threatens physical violence if he won't stop whimpering. Uh, This is all just tragic and heartbreaking. And there's a lot going on in Jed's dream life, um, in the land of marvelous dreams. The Annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger again notes that uh, this is uh, a callback to a comic strip from the early 1900s, ran from 1905 to 1914, called Little Nemo in Slumberland. It was also known as In the Land of Wonderful Dreams. And in it, a child would frequently have kind of adventures when asleep and then it would always end with the child usually like find themselves in peril and then only to be 
fall out of bed and wake up or something else, um, you know, would wake up at the end of it. Um, but it would have a similar kind of grid structure with numbered panels, apparently. So there's that going on. The one thing you mentioned that uh, Bruton Glob seemed to release the Skooky Bird maybe on him from their balloon. It's really hard to tell whether Bruton Glob are friendly or foes here. They look certainly like terrifying creatures. Um, and it looks to me like they're releasing the Skooky Bird at him, but it's not entirely clear because they're also warning him. I guess they're saying it is our Skooky Bird. Um, I will note that apparently there was a misprint and in the Absolute Sandman that came out later, one of the collections, it was written as Spooky Bird. Um, but Neil Gaiman has uh, correctly uh, noted and I think it's been corrected in subsequent versions it should in fact be a Skooky Bird, which I don't know what that means and I'm not sure Neil Gaiman did either. <laughs> no, I mean, this seems like it's something straight out of Lewis Carroll, right? Just kind of making up uh, a name and attaching it to a bird that I guess looks a little bit like an albatross as well. Uh, the omnibus editions that we both have, as well as the original old school editions that we're using, actually has it both ways. And in, in two panels, it's Skooky Bird, and in one of them, it's Spooky Bird. I actually read the my first read for this this episode was out of that uh, edition, and so that that sent me to the the old school edition to to double check to see. But yeah, absolutely, it's supposed to be just Skooky Bird. We should talk about these superheroes a little bit as well. I think right, we're gonna get more on them in later issues, so we'll be careful not to spoil anything for first-time readers, anything that, that uh, we're going to get in those future issues. But I think we can actually glean some information from the way that they're depicted here uh, on the page at this point. Uh, what, what do you see going on here, Brent? They have matching outfits, so they seem very much to be together. And the way they're interacting with Jed, it almost seems as if Jed is like their son or very close kind of family member. And they have a very kind of caring relationship with him. Uh, additionally, from the art, it appears that the woman may be pregnant. Right. And we are actually going to find that out a little bit later in this issue. And I'm, I'm interested in the, the logo on the, the, the man's costume here, because it looks very much like an hourglass, right? Which is something that we tend to uh, associate, a, I guess, a sand glass, right? Uh, to associate with dream. Uh, but, but I don't recognize that costume. I don't recognize this costume at all. So, that was the 1970s era Sandman. Um, Jack Kirby did the art on that uh, original series that ran for a brief period of time. And so here we have another kind of incarnation of Sandman. We had seen in the first, uh, first issue way back when, um, that there was reference to, um, there being other Sandmans, um, and that there was Wesley Dodds who, uh, had sleeping gas, and this was a different Sandman uh, in DC continuity. So originally, um, this Sandman was Garrett Sanford, but then later it was Hector Hall. And in the confusingness of DC continuity, Hector Hall at one point was the son of the Golden Age Hawkman and Hawkwoman, but then everything got changed uh, with Golden Age things kind of being written out of uh, retro retroactive continuity. The retcon occurred with Christ on Infinite Earths in 1984-85 time period. So four years before this, um, things kind of got shuffled as to who his parentage were. Similarly, the woman with him um, appeared in those comics as well. And she originally continuity was... Um, the daughter of Golden Age Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. In the new continuity, she is the daughter of a Golden Age character called Fury. Um, and so herself became Fury. And so here, Fury could 
was empowered by the Furies of Greek myth, and they briefly had a time with a supergroup called Infinity Incorporated and some other things. But um, they would have adventures, um, and in particular, um, Sandman was had these companions, Brood and Glob, who were always kind of locked up. Um, but then he would release them by way of a whistle to come aid him at times. So they were weird, like, allies, but yet not really friendly creatures, kind of disagreeable. And in some of the Kirby art, it looked kind of like a tube jail, circular jail kind of cell thing that actually the art is reminiscent of the lines going from the basket up to this hot air balloon. If folks look back at some of those images, but... uh um, and they rescued frequently a boy named Jed in the original 1970s comic. So here we have um, Neil Gaiman playing with the idea that there have been Sandman, characters named Sandman elsewhere in DC continuity, bringing his story kind of into the world of DC continuity where superheroes are, are things that are going on and acknowledging even stories that occurred in the 70s that – Either they are real or they're at least real maybe in the dreams of this boy who's being imprisoned in the basement. We're kind of left to not fully know these things, but it's it's kind of a wink and a nod, I think, for those who have the deep dive on the comics history or an excuse for those like you and I to look further into it later. Right. Well, we know that Brut and Glob are are real because we have seen, or you know, real in in the, in, in the scope of this comic book. Just to be clear, because we have seen Dream talking about how they're escaped. So uh, this seems like a lot of things just kind of crashing into each other all at at once here, and it's uh, that is really kind of what's going on in this issue is the the independent threads that we had in the the first part of this story arc are starting to get woven together here. So already just in this story, right, we're getting woven together the fact that there are these nightmares who are on the loose and that Rose's brother is missing. And this is important, right, because Rose is this dream vortex. So I think on that note, actually, let's get back to what's going on with Rose. So Rose is in her room. It's evening time. And uh, Gaiman is really going to make great use of the, the medium here to show us a a letter that Rose is typing to her mother and her grandmother. And and I mean typing, like on a genuine typewriter here. It's amazing. And this fills us in on the details about Jed and about Rose's quest for him. First, though, she writes a little bit about her housemates, and she says that the the house feels like a remake of the Adams family. She describes Ken and Barbie as terrifyingly, appallingly normal, and then she calls them Stepford yuppies. I love this line. Frankly, I forgot that yuppie was a word we used to use a lot. We used to use this word all the time. This is actually also where we get the observation about the the spider women, right? That it's only ever Chantel who talks, never Zelda. Uh, Rose is really creeped out by them. And here as well, we get this line or a, a sort of different version of this line that you you read earlier from Gaiman himself, Brent, that you know she doesn't know what their relationship is and, and doesn't seem like anybody else does either. And still at this point, also, there is no sign of Gilbert upstairs, though Rose has heard his booming voice. And then finally, and we will get to Jed here in a minute, finally, there is a big raven who has been hanging around outside Rose's window. We're going to get more on 
this raven in a little bit too. But for now, Rose's letter writing is interrupted when Dolly, and that is Hal's drag queen persona, the, the landlord's drag queen persona, bursts into Rose's room with some melodrama about the show that she's in, and then just as quickly departs. But this is important plot information for later. Plus, there's a pretty nice gag here with a Cure poster for their album Boys Don't Cry, which was definitely a huge part of the, the soundtrack to our adolescence. I really liked that panel a lot. Yeah, that was a great. I remember that image being in and that poster being a thing that existed. So um, it isn't something that uh, is being made up here just for that. But it's uh, Dolly coming in and <laughs> expressing very loudly uh, her frustration at being passed over in terms of having the song cut. Um, it's just it's great, um, particularly from the solitude of Rose just listening to her typewriter clacking away or rather tap tacking away as the dialogue they give us right this house is i mean this house is just alive with personality and character and frankly you know because we read this when we were teenagers this house is what i thought it was going to be like to go out in the world and get your own apartment sadly that has although i have lived in some nice places i have never had this experience i think my life is slightly poorer for it but uh we can get back to this letter we get to the information that that really is going to drive the plot here so when rose's parents divorced jed lived with their father and rose lived with their mother but rose's dad died and when that happened, Jed, rather than moving uh, in with their mother for some reason, went to live with their paternal grandfather, whose name was Ezra Paulson and was a lighthouse keeper on Dolphin Island. This is like an entire story all on its own. I don't know if we ever get any more backstory about this. I hope we do, or someone should write some fan fiction. But their grandfather also died, and that was four years ago. And at that point as well, rather than return to his mother, Jed went somewhere else, but Rose hasn't found out where yet. And at this point, we get right into a little cutscene with Dream here when the, the raven gives an update on his surveillance of Rose, right? This is a, a raven who can speak. And while this is going on, Dream is busy creating a new nightmare. This is a real creepy backdrop to this very important conversation, seeing this act of, of creation that, that Dream is doing here. Uh, but in the conversation, we learn that Dream is able to see through the, the raven's eyes to check in on the surveillance. We also learn that because Rose is a vortex, the escaped dreams are going to be drawn to her. And clearly, they, they already have been in some way, given that Brute and Glob are connected with her her brother, Jed, at, at, in, in somehow. We don't quite understand what that's about yet, but we will shortly. We also learn here that the Raven's name is Matthew, and he's uh, having some difficulty remembering to call Dream Sire rather than Boss. This is a great just character, uh, a bit of character dialogue here. And and Brent, maybe here can you, you can put on your, your comics historian hat once again. There's a lot of it in this issue. And fill us in on Matthew's backstory, because I think contemporary readers, people who are reading a lot of DC Comics, would know who Matthew the Raven is at this point, right? Matthew's uh, history is fairly convoluted, but he was friends with the, we'll say original Swamp Thing, um, even though in retconned there were Swamp Things before that Swamp Thing. But to the comic reader, the Swamp Thing they were familiar with, Matt was friends with the person who had died and become Swamp Thing. And so originally, Matthew in life was uh, an FBI agent, and he was thinking that the Swamp Thing was a monster who uh, killed his friend, and so he was trying to hunt Swamp Thing down. Then he realized the truth, that the Swamp Thing actually was his 
still living, reincarnating, really kind of confusing, depending on what you're reading, friend. So then he was somewhat with him, but then he was also prone to fits of alcoholism, and he ended up getting possessed by uh, a mad kind of sorcerer figure in the Swamp Thing lore who took over his body and was trying to then destroy Swamp Thing's lover slash the necromancer's daughter it's it's a long thing anyways uh he ends up at some point matthew dying after fighting back um and you know freeing his body once again from being possessed he manages to then uh live for a little bit but then he is in a coma he then actually passes away but when he passes away his soul ends up in the dreamlands and ends up inhabiting this uh, Raven of Matthew. Um, so he is now serving Sandman apparently as Raven Matthew. We'll find out more about Ravens going, f- uh, in the future because apparently it's a thing. Um, but that's kind of the very brief encapsulated. There are many, vin- many volumes of Sandman to read or Swamp Thing to read to, uh, fully appreciate everything that's happened to Matthew up until this point. But he is not alien to kind of the strange going ons of the DC universe. But he also is kind of a normalish guy who's intersecting with kind of the weird terror of the world um, and in some ways is a victim of it through also his own alcoholism mixed with just encountering terrible existential terror and, and evil influence taking him over. And he, even in this issue, he seems like something of an audience surrogate here. He's, you know, just a, a low level functionary here. And because he clearly is just a regular guy who thinks that boss rather than sire is the more natural thing to uh, call your, I don't know, work supervisor, I guess, right? He feels like someone we can kind of sink our, our teeth into and, and he can become a, a lens through which we will experience this world as as well. And I think there are some other issues to come where that's going to be a little bit more clear. I do want to mention that um, as Dream is getting this report from Matthew, there's this terrifying image, and we only can kind of partially see it because when Matthew finds Dream, he's standing on what appears to be, I don't know if it's a beach or the edge of the cosmos. It's really hard to tell, and it varies a little bit in my mind, depending on whether you're looking at it in the original color version, it seems like it's more standing on the edge of like a ring of Saturn versus the recolorized version looks more like by a pool of dark water. Yeah, I think I think it can be both, right? Yeah. But he said he's working on a new nightmare. He just hasn't decided what to name it yet. But it's kind of a great image of these creatures whose we can at least see one and a half of their what we're, well, where their faces would be. But there are no faces. There are just seemingly empty holes with, like, mush. It kind of looks like when you've got a pumpkin that you've carved the face and then eventually it, like, rots or sinks inward. And so then you just have this kind of hole looking into a, a, a vacant space is kind of reminiscent to me, so... And there do seem to be multiple, uh, and there do seem to be several of these humanoid figures that he's calling the the nightmare, that it's going to be sort of a multiple persona nightmare. And some of the images, even though they don't actually have faces, some of the images just really reminded me of the Cybermen from Doctor Who, this kind of just anonymous, scary humanoid uh, f- figure. Uh, it, it, it certainly looks nightmarish. And we, we've heard before, there are a lot of instances where we've met a lot of residents like Matthew of the Dreamlands who they came from somewhere else and now they live in Dreamlands. Cain and Abel are that way. 
the woman in the cave, who had been referenced before as that way. And then we've met other creatures who seem to have perhaps been created by Dream, like maybe Bruton Glob, maybe the Corinthian, maybe Fiddler's Green, um, who, you know, he mentioned all those were the missing ones. And we've seen Lucian. Lucian maybe was created by Dream or otherwise came into being in the Dreamland. But here I think it might be the first time we see Dream actively crafting like an entity. And so I wonder if then once this nightmare is finished, whether it's, you know, not so much a visual, like you're watching a film kind of nightmare, but actually a living creature in so much as any of these creatures we are encountering in the dreamland are alive um, in like, such as Lucian or maybe Bruton Glob who he'd mentioned who had run off. Yeah. This is a great observation because we, we see dream here creating new life. I think you're, you're right to question if life is quite right, but he's creating people, whether or not they're alive in a kind of biological sense. They do seem to be people in a, a spiritual sense. I mean, not necessarily this nightmare that we see on this beach here, but the other entities that you talk about, as far as we can tell, they all have free will and Dream treats them as if they do. He treats them as if they are fully people. And that's absolutely fascinating that Dream doesn't create these entities and then still retain c- control over them, that he can turn them off when he, he wants to, uh, or at least that he doesn't seem to choose to turn them off uh, at any point he, he wants to. Maybe we'll see more on that later. Yeah, I mean, he very much still wants to, them to be the subjects of his kingdom, um, so that he wants them to respect him as their royalty um, or their god-king in literal manifest, maybe, but still to independently be choosing to do that, um, maybe out of fear, maybe out of something else, rather than just being kind of automatons or just a production that is wheeled out whenever you or I fall asleep. So what it amounts to, right, is that at least as we're seeing it here in this issue, is that the, the relationship between Dream and these uh, dreams and, and, and nightmare entities that he creates is the relationship that God has with human beings in, in Christian scripture. Uh, so that, that's very interesting. This is something we'll have to keep an eye on to sort of trying to understand, trying to get at the, the metaphysics of this speculative world that Gaiman is, is building here. Well, and it's been a little while since we've revisited this, but um, we have mentioned in the past trying to keep tally of what are Dream's actual powers in terms of if he – as a superhero kind of character where he exists in the universe where there's Superman who's got a wonderful suite of superpowers, where Batman who has the superpower of just being really, really rich, and then you've got Dream. And what are Dream's powers and how might they wax or wane? And in this case, we see him – creating things where we've seen him before kind of create things from his bag of sand here we see him creating entities which we've seen rumor of him doing before but uh later in this issue we'll have an excuse to talk more about other powers uh, and limitations regarding those powers um, as we learn more about dream but then we cut back to rose rose has left the drag show and uh Uh, is singing a happy song in her head as she wanders off and tries to take an alley that she thinks is the fast way home, but apparently it is not the way to go at night. This alley, not actually in Gotham, but may as well be the the alley where... Uh, Martha Wayne was uh, was killed and created uh, created Batman. So yeah, she chooses this wrong alley here to take home, and there are some hoodlums. But just in time, a large man in a cape and a, a very cool looking fedora appears and uh, takes down these hoodlums with his cane, and then he introduces himself. And this 
is Gilbert, the upstairs housemate. We get a close-up of Gilbert's face here, though we almost don't need it simply because of the the profile, but the, the face lets us know that Gilbert is G.K. Chesterton the famous English writer of the 20th century who wrote the the fantasy adventure novel, The Man Who Was Thursday. But, but as I recall, the, the, the Sandman actually was my introduction to Chesterton, even though he was a, a contemporary of Tolkien's and wrote some fantasy stories. I had somehow never heard of him until reading the, the Sandman here, until encountering Gilbert. But Chesterton's actually become a really important part of my life because he was a massive influence on Gene Wolfe, and not merely as an occasional writer of speculative fiction, but actually in his much more important capacity as a, a significant part of the 20th century Catholic intellectual tradition, and also the English philosophical tradition. And this is all because Chesterton converted to Catholicism, and he wrote a lot about that conversion. Uh, Gene Wolfe certainly identified with that. He converted to Catholicism as well. But Chesterton also wrote a lot of material material reacting against modernity, uh, really, I guess we should say against the world of the Industrial Revolution. And Chesterton is someone who saw industrial capitalism, which, you know, that's the world we live in today, saw this as a type of mass slavery. This is something that really resonated with Gene Wolfe. And in fact, as you and I are recording this episode, Brandon and I are covering a phase of Wolfe's career when he wrote a number of stories about Exactly this, including Hour of Trust, which I think might actually be the very first cyberpunk story, though maybe that's a conversation, an argument we can have on the uh, on the forums over there. And of course, you know that Gene Wolfe and Neil Gaiman were great friends. We will eventually talk about an introduction to a volume of The Sandman written by Wolfe himself. And you know, just reading this again now, I, I found myself imagining that a love of Chesterton is one of the things that actually started that friendship. Uh, but Brent, I don't remember how we actually come to know that this is G.K. Chesterton, like you and I did when we were reading this as teenagers, but I don't know how that becomes clear to us. Uh, and also that G.K. Chesterton was someone we should be reading because it's not obvious here unless you already know who Chesterton was and what he looked like. Yeah, I have no particular memory of at what point I went from thinking of it as just a guy with a trench coat and a fedora and a cane who beats up on neo-Nazis in an alley to, oh, no, that's a representation of an author. Um, I have no clue when I made that switch. I mean, if I had read more Chesterton, I might have picked up early when uh, uh, when Rose is writing her letter and she mentions Gilbert and she mentions that she has not seen him, but that he occasionally has a booming voice that calls out. Like one time he wanted Hal to bring a six foot long pencil since he was staying in bed for a week and wished to draw on the ceiling. And apparently that from the annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger uh, informs me that that's a line from a Chesterton essay called On Lying in Bed. The actual quote in On Lying in Bed from G.K. Chesterton is, quote, Lying in bed would be an altogether perfect and supreme experience if only one had a colored pencil long enough to draw on the ceiling. Which is a wonderful line. I particularly like the fact that it's a colored pencil and not just a normal pencil. Yeah, Chesterton is one of these just richly imaginative people. 
who also did write quite a bit for for children and is someone who really believed in the the power and and the the power for good of of an imagination i didn't always write fantasy stories or speculative fiction stories but he did write a lot of them and he believed that they did a lot of good in the world and you can see where where stories where lines like that would resonate with with people like neil gaiman and also gene wolf this idea that yeah staying in bed would be totally fine so long as you have some outlet for creativity and chesterton is just a brilliant wordsmith uh, he's he's a witty writer a very clever writer and if you're interested in words and and manipulating words to to do interesting tricks clever tricks uh, you're going to be drawn to him and you that's another place where you can really see the influence that chesterton has had on both gaiman and wolf and there's two things I love about the introduction of Gilbert here in action pose. Um, one is that the, the onomatopoeia that we're given for the sound that is being made as he trips one of the thugs with his cane is the word trip. <laughs> so I love that. But I also love the fact that you can universally use for, let's say, most of the populace, although unfortunately still not all, um, the idea of a hero is the person who is fighting the Nazi as opposed to something else. Yes, absolutely. I think this this resonates uh, perhaps now even more than it did for us back in the, the 90s. Yeah, I think probably back in the 90s, even I maybe even thought, well, that's a little too on the nose to have them not only be skinhead punks with knives who are trying to assault this woman in the alley, but also they need to have swastikas on their shirts and as tiny tattoos very very tiny tattoos at least one of them on the arm i'm not really sure how many neo-nazi skinheads uh, you know looking like they're kind of wrapped up in the punk scene or something i'm not sure how many of them would have actually been near cape canaveral florida but this is <laughs> something that you would have seen a lot in in london uh, in the late 80s london and, and i think the bay area quite a bit in those those punk scenes at that time there is also something very funny probably uh, you've done a lot more chesterton reading than i have but the image of of a Chesterton character coming to blows and defeating basically these parasitic symptoms of the negative sides of modernity, right? Um, with their kind of spiked um, wristbands and epaulets and knives and kind of grisly terribleness um, that maybe could have existed pre-modernity, but are very much also symptoms of uh, the environment that spawned them. Well, and Chesterton was living through the the rise of of Hitler, the the establishment of the Nazi Party, and and really just the rise of fascism in general. And he wrote a lot of essays against it, pointing out all of the ways in which this uh, political ideology, this cultural ideology, is 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 morally reprehensible. Uh, really, just kind of coming at it from from every angle. All of those essays, I think, are absolutely worth reading. In fact, I'm not sure I've read anything by Chesterton that I wouldn't say is worth reading. And I have been doing a lot of Chesterton reading lately. We're not actually quite done with Gilbert yet, but we are done with this scene. It's really just our introduction to this character. But uh, before we actually move on, before we leave this scene entirely uh, on the note of reading more Chesterton, we should actually let listeners know about some other places that you can encounter Chesterton here on the network, on our podcast. And uh, the first of these is an episode of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast called The Road So Far, Part One. Uh, this was just a pause that Brandon and I took to talk about everything that we'd covered up to that point, which was... Uh, I think at that point, about 20 short stories and one novel. Uh, and the novel itself was actually a kind of Chestertonian political science fiction novel. That episode might actually be really great if you want to hear a little more about Chesterton and also have been thinking about getting into to Gene Wolfe. You'll hear us talk you know, just briefly, I guess, about a number of stories. And you know, one of them might 
catch your uh, imagination and you'll want to check that out. Uh, but the other place that you can hear Brandon and I talking about Chesterton is on a Patreon episode that we did about his short story, The Blue Cross, which is the, the first of his stories about Father Brown, who's a, a Catholic priest who is also a detective on the, the model of uh, Dorothy Sayers or, or Agatha Christie. I mean, he's kind of a Catholic, he's, he's kind of Hercule Poirot as a Catholic priest, I guess. And uh, Father Brown's actually made something of a comeback in pop culture because there is a new-ish TV show. I actually still haven't seen it, even though Brandon and I swore that we would go watch it as soon as we finished uh, recording that episode. We just never made good on that promise. But uh, if you are into Father Brown, even just from the TV show, you can check that out on Patreon. And I would say, really, we should probably be doing more Chesterton somehow, given how important he is to both Wolf and Gaiman. So maybe we'll think about making that some kind of, I don't know, Patreon stretch goal or something. Uh, in fact, if you've got ideas for what that goal would be, we would love to hear them. So go ahead and drop us a note on that. Well, all right. I think we can uh, we can get back to the story. We've taken a pretty big detour, a longer detour than Rose would have had if she had simply gone around this alley, I think. But uh, back to the story. So it is time for another of Jed's adventures in Dreamland. Uh, we check in at the end of an adventure in which uh, Jed and Lita, I guess is how I'm going to pronounce this. It's short for Hippolyta. Uh, so maybe it's supposed to be Lita, but I'm going to say Lita. Jed and Lita and the Sandman have saved the world from the Toad Dancers of Pluto, uh, which sounds like an amazing story from the pulp era of sci-fi. I wish someone would write that now as a kind of pastiche if it's not actually based on a real story already. I think it's a reference to at one point they fought the frogmen. I think of the moon was the reference. Um, Oh man. So, so there are, so, okay. I love this idea that there are frogmen on the moon and toe dancers on Pluto. This is like the sharks and the jets or something, right? Uh, they defeated the Frogmen, yes, in Sandman Volume 2, Number 5, October-November 1975, Jed and the Sandman defeat the Frogmen, um, is what the annotated Sandman notes this is probably a reference to. So, uh, a no clear as to whether the Frogmen are on Pluto or the Moon. I have not read that particular comic, so I do not know, but uh, we know since Jack Kirby did the art, it must be wonderful to look at. If we're, if we're looking around for other things to read for Patreon episodes, I, I would love to check this out. So maybe we'll have to keep that in mind as well. Well, we are in their base. We're in the, the base of the Sandman and his wife. And we see that Brute and Glob are locked up in, oh, I don't know, what I guess I would describe as a cute little birdcage. And also we see that there is a large glass sphere that has some gerbils in it. And in fact, they are called verbal gerbils, which is just fantastic. And when Jed pushes some buttons on the apparatus holding up this glass ball, the verbal gerbils, which I just don't think I could say without laughing, the, the verbal gerbils are magically transported out of the ball. And then they basically turn into tribbles, right? They just multiply exponentially in a, a matter of minutes. And, you know, it's something of a problem. He's calling for help and l lamenting that he ever pushed the button to begin with. But then we get the heartbreak. We get the, the tragedy here because in the real world, Jed is awoken from this dream by an encounter with a very real rat. Uh, in his basement prison, a rat bites Jed on the face. This is a really gruesome scene, but it also really ratchets up the, the tension, ratchets up maybe the suspense, we should say, that we have about Rose's quest to find Jed, because we see that he needs to be rescued. Though, that's not actually something that Rose knows at this point. So in some ways, the stakes feel higher to us than they actually do for the protagonist at this point. Yeah, they, they do. And it's interesting. And I think it's a smart decision to have the rat not just biting him on the face, but also 
looking like the rat is approaching towards his eyeball. Uh, the eye being something that frequently is used both in, uh, well, particularly any kind of visual art for depicting terror, the damage to the eye, as we as the audience are looking at this face with our eye and seeing an eye staring back at us in terror as a rat gets close to it after having already sunk its teeth into the cheek. I do want to step back from that terrible list for just a second and ask you a question, Glenn, because you and Valerie maybe discussed this at some point. I'm not sure in how much you've gone into triple lore. If the verbal gerbils, which I just wanted to say verbal gerbils one more time, <laughs> are triple surrogates, it seems to me strange, though, that this magic glass globe seems to have stopped them from multiplying it, it, the verbal gerbils seem to fill the space available to them. So when they were in the globe, they only had three. As soon as they were out, they were immediately four. Then they kept g- growing. But the tribbles would just fill that globe right up unless it had some kind of uh, other kind of gas thing going on, right? Yes, I would expect that. So there's clearly some technology going on here that uh, that Captain Kirk needs to, to get a hold of. Because that way, I think everybody would love to have a tribble if it would just be a solitary tribble because you you can have just one tribble but if that tribble i I think even comes within 10 feet of another tribble then just the whole world is gonna is gonna fall apart i mean the klingons fought like an entire war against tribbles and one of their most epic poems is actually about the klingon tribble war basically the klingon war against verbal gerbils i guess i don't know i would read that book well they don't like talking a lot they like talking with their fists so maybe they don't care for their verbal gerbils i don't know (laughs) i think you've cracked this one wide open well we are coming to the end here at this point so dream wants to locate jed as well because rose is a vortex and so he has matthew the raven steal a photo of jed from rose's room because he's gonna use this photo in order to try to find jed he says that he has to see jed he has to know what jed looks like i guess in order to find him in the 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 dreaming and the way this works is that each human is connected to the dreaming right we spend a third of our lives asleep after all and so dream can locate anyone who's alive or at least that's the way it should work but dream can't actually find jed which means that someone somehow has removed him from the dreaming and if that's the case, then it has to be one of these escaped dreams. They're the only people who would have the ability and the, the knowledge to, to do this. And of course, right, we already know this. We know it's Brute and Glob. And Dream discovers that as well. And he is furious about it. And he tells us what's going on here, right? The, the How this is working, what the mechanism is here. And it turns out that they have created a self-constructed dream realm inside of Jed's mind and they're living in it, which is an abomination. And Dream here, now he puts on his helm and he flames up his cloak real good and he's ready to go after them. That's actually the last panel of the story, but we have skipped over a few things because I alighted some scenes together that we can go back to in a minute. But this this scene here with Dream, you know, putting on his accoutrements of war, his armor and his weapons essentially uh, is pretty pretty terrifying. It's real serious business. Yeah, it is. And here we have the flames, which at times we've seen kind of dancing just above his ankles, certainly under his knees on his cloak slash coat before. And here they're fired all the way up so that they're dancing to maybe even slightly kind of kiss the top of uh, his arms there under the robe. And he's putting on his gauntlets um, like he's preparing for action. So it's quite the uh, kind of the superhero suiting up, go riding out kind of 
image, which, according to the Annotated Sandman uh, and Neil Gaiman's notes associated with this, he this is what he wanted was he wanted the image of uh, he remembered the cowboy and the images of the cowboy who's decided to put down the bottle and finally ride off to bring forth justice. And so I think that's what we have here without the bottle. Um, we've got Dream is angry and Dream is about to go take some kind of vengeance. And certainly on the last page, the, the center panel on the top, we, we really, I don't know if we've seen this much emotion from him before, as much as we have him gritting his teeth as he's talking about how they know the law, my law, and they will, they have intentionally, or sorry, they have wantonly defied it. Did they think they could hide from me? So, I mean, part of that's ego, um, obviously, because there's a lot of my and me being emphasized in the text balloon. But part of it also, well, the law is also being emphasized. And Dream is a creature who believes in his laws, particularly if he's the one who creates them. But he's also very angry. Um, and, I mean, maybe it's interesting that his anger is in terms of them betraying his law versus them being a parasite in a young boy's head. I don't, what are your thoughts on that, Glenn? Well, if we're thinking of Dream in terms of the Old Testament God who creates mankind, creates humanity, and gives them free will, but then gets real mad when they use that free will to uh, violate the laws, the rules that he has given to humanity, I mean, I think that's, the, that's kind of what we see going on in this entire issue. Uh, I had never noticed that before, so I was really glad that you you pointed out the the extent to which he's creating life in some sense here uh, because he does seem to be uh, modeled on the the god of the the Old Testament here in this this kind of righteous anger, this being really concerned that people are choosing to follow his rules or not. And there's no sense here that he can exercise some kind of immediate supernatural power over them. He can't just say, ah, well, I'm disappointed in the way that these creatures, these people I've created are behaving, so I'm going to stamp them out just through my own will. He has to actually go to them, and it seems like they might have a chance of surviving this encounter, though you know we don't see that in this issue. Presumably we will in the, the next one. And so again, here, just really fascinating glimpses into the metaphysics of how this works. So um, before you're in the midst of Dream coming to the realization of what's going on and then getting angry and suiting up, uh, we cut away to a motel in Birmingham, Alabama, um, where the Corinthian uh, is eating eyeballs and chatting on the phone. And it's terrifying and gross. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. This is just kind of a, a two-page check-in on the the Corinthian, right? Who is you know this serial killer nightmare who has escaped the the dreaming, and this is because the Corinthian is clearly going to become more important as our stories start to to collide a little bit. But what's going on here is that he's heard about a meeting of serial killers. We we get the term collector used here, and. He's interested in attending this. So, right, he's making a phone call to find out where it is. Turns out it's going to be in Birmingham, Alabama. And so now that he knows the exact time and place, he's going to take a road trip uh, of his own and and head as well towards the Southeast United States. And, of course, as every scene that we've had so far with the Corinthian, this scene is from his eyes. It's through his own eyes, his teeth eyes, actually, I guess we should say. And so, yeah, we're gruesomely watching him play with some eyeballs that he's removed from someone. And then before we depart this scene, we actually see two teenage boys tied up against a hotel bed with their 
eyes cut out. So again, it's a it's a gruesome scene. This whole issue has some real gruesomeness in it. And there is an interesting connection, I guess, in uh, seeing that the three nightmares, Brute Glob and the Corinthian, who we're experiencing here, are all in some way connected with really horrific brutality being visited on young boys. And we've got this line that the Corinthian delivers where I'm part of the American dream. And I was trying to think like what he might mean by that. Um, And part of it might be given the expanse of America and the freedom of movement that he has, that he's able to, you know, go to town to town and take advantage of in torture and, ultimately seemingly kill um, and consume eyeballs, at least of boys, um, that that's a particularly kind of terrible part of Americana, at least kind of an American Gothic kind of sense. I, I don't know what your read was of that. Yeah, I think this is a, about the serial killers. I think serial killers, you know, we tend to, I think today serial killers are something of a global phenomenon. I mean, maybe not in actual practice, but in terms of literature, that they've been incorporated into the literature of other countries. But I think at the time that Gaiman was writing this, serial killers were really the special purview of America, if you know that's something that we want to brag about, I guess. Uh, but we're certainly a part of our national consciousness. And I think especially in the 70s and the 80s, uh, the, the fear of serial killers was blown out of all proportion to the extent to which there were actual serial killers. But there were a rash of famous serial killers, including uh, John Wayne Gacy and and uh, the Zodiac Killer and, and so on during this period that I think gripped the imagination of people living outside of America as well as being this scary thing that you might encounter in America. So when the Corinthian here uses the term or uses the phrase American dream, in some ways what he's meaning is the image of America that people have in their mind. Uh, you know, I'm not sure he's talking about, you know, homeownership or freedom and prosperity <laughs> with the way that our politicians use American dream. Yeah, I think he's, it's a particular kind of not so much American dream as American nightmare. Um, yeah. In terms of the loneliness and despair and isolation, but also that people who are out to cause ill can are freely out on the highway going from motel to motel, if you will. But also going motel to motel, sort of. Um, bad transition. Uh, Rose is going to get on the road, uh, and she will not be alone. Right. Everyone's taking a road trip now. So Rose has discovered that when their grandfather died, Jed went to live with her father's cousin, Clarice, as well as her husband on a farm in northern Georgia. And so she's going to go after them. And Rose assumes that he's living a good life because Clarice is getting a hefty sum of money each month for caring for Jed. But of course, we know that that's not true. And actually, in this scene, just to remind us, we do get another image here of Jed chained up in the basement. But okay, so so Rose is going up there now, going up to Georgia from Florida because she's got the address. And so there is going to be some kind of confrontation here. But fortunately, Rose is not going to take this road trip alone because Gilbert, or G.K. Chesterton, insists on coming with her. And I have to say that I really wish that we'd had the opportunity to go on a road trip with G.K. Chesterton and his ancient but serviceable revolver at some point. I That's a dream I hope I get to have tonight. Well, and it's great because he uh, also shows us that his walking stick is also a sword cane. It is not just a cane. It also has the sword within it. He did not bother to display the blade when he was dispensing with the thugs in the alley. But here we have him pry 
happily like lofting it ahead uh, over his head. Right. In this story, I think G.K. Chesterton is essentially auditioning to join the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, right? Like he's, he got left out, but he should have been a literary figure right in there with them. He kind of feels like G.K. Chesterton meets a older Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yes, exactly. In fact, gosh, they kind of look a lot alike, don't they? I would, uh, I want to envision a world in which, in fact, they were really the same person, uh, just living a, uh, I don't know, living a secret life like Bruce Wayne and Batman or Clark Kent and Superman. <laughs> Someone needs to write those books. I will be your number one fan, I promise. Well, that wraps up this episode. And, and here at this point, then, I'm, I, I guess, leaving this issue, I'm wondering how the Corinthian is then going to intersect with the Rose Jed Gilbert story. And I will say that the last time, the last issue, I thought that there was going to be a chance that the, the boy that the Corinthian had uh, locked up in his hotel in Amarillo, Texas, might actually have been Jed. We know now that that's not true. But I guess we do know that these es- escaped dreams are going to be drawn to Rose because she's uh, a, a vortex. And I guess they are traveling in towards each other, even if they're not headed in the, the same direction. But I'm interested in how Gaiman is going to weave these two threads uh, together. And we've already seen him weave all, almost all the others together. Yeah, I mean, Dream is following the Vortex, and the Vortex is pulling everything in, and now he's got his battle gear on and his action helmet. So all of our characters, one way or the other, are probably going to end up in the same place for a giant crossover of sorts. But yeah, I remember thinking when we first saw the boy in the hotel, I think before we saw an indication of Jed that I thought that that might have been Jed as well. And I think that was intentional. I think we were supposed to be fearful not only of the Corinthian, but also have the idea brought to us early that whatever was going on with Jed is probably not that he is living happily on a farm and being well cared for. Happy lives don't make the best stories, as uh, as I think we all know. Well, should we uh, should we go through our our normal end of story checklist here and uh, and talk about the the cover art? I'm actually thrown by what this cover is. I really have no idea even what the figure on this cover is. Yeah, I really don't know either. Well, what we've got is a figure of a naked man who I'll say I think looks a lot like Tom Hiddleston. And this guy is uh, leaning over and kissing the hand of someone else. And we can see that he has hooks in him, hooks that uh, connect, I guess, via some wires up to the, the ceiling. Uh, behind him, there's a, a window. So this looks like it's probably the interior of of some place. It kind of looks like an old farmhouse to me, I guess. And there are some scissors in the foreground. And then there is a butterfly up in the top right. And the, the butterfly is colored, but the rest of the image is not quite, but almost in, in grayscale. But yeah, I'm not really sure who this person is supposed to be. But so far, all of the cover images have been of something or someone who's in the story. So if that's going to continue to be the case, I mean, what would be your guess about who from the present issue this actually is? I mean, I'm really not sure, but here's my stab at things. I think that the cover image of his is is of Hal Carter, not just because he appears on the first page, but because Hal is also Dolly. And then I was thinking about the hooks that are in the figure of let's say this is Hal. Look, remind me of a marionette, but with the scissors and the looseness to the strings, and it's almost as if the marionette has been freed. Um, maybe by himself in this case, um, or maybe by other things. So it, it struck me very much with also then the butterfly play that perhaps this is Hal, um, who has embraced the idea that Hal sometimes is Dolly. And in that, 
kind of has broken from social convention um, and is kind of free and be- has become the, the, the beautiful butterfly, whether he is Hal or she is Dolly, either way. That's a really interesting reading of this, and I, I like that a lot. I, I was drawn to kind of the menace of these hooks, actually, and was somehow trying to find some way to, to make it fit with the, the serial killers, or at least the, the nightmares, but I really was thinking that this has to be somehow connected to the Corinthian, even though it is clearly not actually the, the Corinthian. Uh, yeah, I like your reading a, a lot better, and I, I'd also be interested in hearing other readings about this from our, our listeners. Yeah, I would as well. I think a lot of my bias is just coming in from the presentation where, in the volume, looking at it, it's the cover and then immediately the first page of the comic. So we're seeing Hal meeting Rose. And so the fact that I've got opposite that a picture of what appears to be a male figure kind of greeting a woman's hand with a kiss makes me think that, oh, well, these are the people who are greeting each other on the opposite page. Well, if that's the case, then it, it maybe suggests that Hal Carter is not going to be just this kind of background character, right? If that's the the figure that Dave McKean decided he wanted to draw or was instructed to, to draw. I don't know if you have any information about that in the annotated Sandman there. There was no information there, nor in the covers volume. There's information about the model uh, who who's the hand is the woman who actually was the figure model on the prior cover. And her husband is the male model who is the figure in this one. But um, no further information on the cover. I also think it's worth mentioning uh, kind of the obvious in some way. It appears that the house that Rose is moving into is Hal's house, which is also then Dolly's house, which is Doll's house. Um, so this is kind of the house then that Rose is going into. And we don't quite see spiders, but almost it feels like cobwebs in the bottom picture of the, so it could be that the old wood that we've got in the top and bottom of the cover frame is referencing the house that Rose is moving into. Oh, perfect. Right. It's not an old farmhouse like out in the middle of Iowa, which is kind of what I thought it looked like. No, it's not that at all. It's the Victorian mansion here in Florida. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Well, should we talk about the title? Yeah. So moving in, um, <laughs> done in very kind of fun font, um, very much, I think, you know, it's Rose moving in, but what else do you think might be going on there? Anything else going on in the title or is it just also about all of these characters who are moving closer to each other? Yeah, well, I think that's definitely right. I mean, you know, it's kind of on the nose at first, right, that Rose is literally moving into this doll's house. But there are some other instances here of of moving in. Uh, Brute and Glob have moved into Jed's mind, for one. And of course, Jed has moved in with his aunt. Neither of these are good situations. In fact, Jed has moved in with a lot of people. There's a lot of Jed moving in with people in the, the backstory here. But of course, as you say, we, we should also think of moving in as coming close to, you know, um, the, the, the plot threads sort of moving into harmony with each other, crashing into each other, right? And so in that case, Rose and Gilbert are moving in on Jed's location. And maybe the Corinthian is too. He's certainly getting, getting closer to it than uh, he was in Texas. So yeah, there seems to be some converging here as well. Did you have a favorite panel? Let me, let me guess. Was it Chesterton fighting Nazis? I mean, maybe in my heart, probably that's the, that would be the one. But I'm actually going to pick a text-heavy panel this time, which is something I don't usually do. I was kind of trying to turn over a new leaf here. I feel like I've been in a rut lately with them. Uh, but and I'll say that I love this entire sequence of Rose typing this letter, in which we get the the text on the right of a series of panels that stretch horizontally across the page, while on the left we get some images of her. Uh, 
progress uh, in in the in the writing, and we see her typing, we see the the, the photos of Jed, we see her uh, drinking. I guess what I'm taking to be a bourbon on the rocks. So you know, you might have a different interpretation. Uh, we also <laughs> get a photo of Jed with their grandfather, and and so on. There's a, a number of these, but I really like the images that we get that are actually external to the the house while she's writing. And I'm going to talk about two of them. And the, the the first in the sequence shows us Matthew the Raven flying toward the house at night. It's just a tremendously gothic image all on its own. But with the juxtaposition of this typescript, it has a real pulpy feel to it. And so it's something of a, a mashup, I guess, of, of two of my favorite eras in literature. So I just really love it. It just really speaks to me. But the other one of these that I really like is an image of Rose through her window with the the yellow light on and it's illuminating the outline of the house. But just in case we don't know what she's up to in there, the words tack, tack, tick, tap have been written around (laughs) the window so that we can tell that she's typing. And this just makes me laugh because it's it's silly. It's it's like a kid pretending to type or something like that. And I imagine that this is Neil poking a little fun at the image of his profession, right? Alone at night in a room, just banging away on a typewriter. And it's really the sound of it that matters more than the words that are actually making it onto the page. I, I just like both of these images a lot. Yeah, they're great. And this whole series is wonderful because it's also... I mean, Rose is not your stereotypical noir detective in her look. She's, well, she's a young woman with rainbow colored hair, but she very much is doing the, you know, might as well be monologuing, you know, about the dame who got away at times because she's sitting there typing away, thinking about the clues, drinking her. And I thought it was scotch, but it might be bourbon. Who knows? Um, but just kind of, it feels very noir detective. And it feels like a, this is something that I could see anyone doing in an old film or even something Jessica Jones doing in a more contemporary setting. And I also loved one of the images earlier where the Raven almost might as well be the one who's tap-a-tapping against the window as well, which is a great little Poe kind of reference um, versus the clink of the keyboard. Yes, absolutely. And the the caption there is tap-tap-a-tap, which is just fantastic. I feel like I'm going to say that to somebody today, you know? Well, what was what was your favorite panel this issue? You know, there were a lot of really good ones. I, I like that whole series. Um, I always like seeing people punch Nazis even better when they're being tripped with the word trip uh, with a cane. Um, <laughs> we talked about the creation of the nightmares, but it's actually the, on the last page of the issue. Uh, dream getting angry. I was tempted to make mine, but I think I'm going to have it be, I keep cheating and like, here are my five runners up. So, um, I gave two this time, so I think it's okay. (laughs) Um, but it's actually the last panel where it's dream who is suited up with the flames looking up. And it's just on the one hand, I feel like this is the bold call to action. On the other hand, with the HR Geiger esque kind of alien head helmet, xenomorph style helmet, it always looks a little peculiar. But he also looks like he's about to take a night out on the town in like a, you know, Rocky Horror Picture kind of way. And in the way the arch for the doorway looks that's around him, it almost reminds me of a jukebox, um, an old jukebox and the way that it would look. So it's, it's just a weird collage with then like the pillar tops, but also then like the checkered tile, which I would expect to see in like, I don't know, an old diner or some kind of throwback thing. And it's, it's, it's bold and it's, 
kind of a great call to action piece, but it's also ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. This kind of collage of different styles and arts, and I don't even know what to feel about it. And for that, I love it because I can keep looking at this over and over. And every time I look at it, I'd have a different emotion. And like, even like what's going on with on the, from the audience perspective, the left hand column. Like, why is there a weird shadow glint there, but not on the right hand? Like, what's going on with the lighting in this picture? I just don't even understand. But I love it. The last time we saw Dream in this state, you pointed out that he looked like he was doing a a, a stutter step. And that was actually in the diner as well. But here also, he does look like he's doing some kind of dance move or getting ready to do some kind of dance move. Uh, There's something to be done here, right? Dream is always striking these kind of dance poses every time he's he's ready to go into battle. He's also rocking some seriously skinny jeans here, too, these black jeans. And his boots are very cool looking, too. I mean, they look like they're, you know, they're black leather boots, but they also look like the 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 tips of the boots kind of come to a, a narrow point so that there's like some extra bit of boot where your feet can't actually fit into there's probably a technical name for that but he definitely looks like he's going for his appearance as well as he's going for the sort of utility of these things in his upcoming battle i guess presumably with with brute and and glob i think he just likes to likes to look good when he's out in his official capacity and who can blame him and on his boots as you mentioned what i love also is that looks like there's almost a little maybe even superman insignia that's on the front of them we just can't fully see it like we just see part of the pattern from the side of like the diamond it's it's great i love this image i really want this to be a pin of some kind that i would just like i don't know wear on the lapel of my suit when i went to meetings that'd be great <laughs> well and this would be an, an amazing cosplay yes. costume i'm sure that someone has actually done this but uh you know we've got a con coming up uh soon so i don't know maybe we maybe we could do this uh though i don't know if i had to pick i'd probably want to dress up like chesterton i think i already have the chesterton outfit except for the sword cane so (laughs) well i think we can get you one of those we'll just have to see if those are legal in new jersey or not Well, I think now that we are are planning our costumes for our next con appearance, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of moving in. We posed a lot of questions about the the metaphysics of Dream's powers here. And we talked a little bit about the ways in which Gaiman is writing Dream as if he's an Old Testament god, which is, a, a, I think, an observation that hadn't occurred to me on my previous reads here. That's a topic I think we'd really be interested in talking about as well. And please do check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. You can find our episode about G.K. Chesterton's story, The Blue Cross there, as well as about 50 other bonus episodes that we think you'll really love. And next time, The Doll's House Part 3, Playing House. Well, until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>